Welcome to the Humans of Hospitality podcast. I know so many of you listening to this show love your local bar, your local restaurant, maybe your local hotel, and have so many fond memories of time in hospitality businesses. This is the podcast where we get to chat to the human beings behind the scenes of that industry. Maybe the chefs or the bakers or the coffee roasters or the gin distillers or the craft brewers or the entrepreneurs, but all doing an amazing job of making sure that hospitality stays interesting and the big dull formulaic brands do not take over our high street please enjoy the show In this week's conversation, we are chatting to Giles Henschel from Olives et al. Now, when Giles and his wife Annie took a gap year many years ago and went on a 38,000-mile motorbike trip around the Mediterranean basin, they had literally no idea it would be the start of a successful business. 26 years later, Olives et al. has created over 400 products, starting with marinated olives, soaking in buckets literally in their bedsit, and then over the years, moving on to hand stuffed olives and pestos and dressings and sauces and more. They are still using recipes given to them by the families they met on their original trip, generations of history that span over 6,000 years and harvesting olives from trees that are two and a half thousand years old. Yes, that's right, trees that are two and a half thousand years old. As we chat, you'll discover why it's a good idea not to tick off a customer when they dip their fingers into your olive taster bowl you never know who they are. And we'll chat about why our attitudes towards food quality would do very well to mirror our attitudes towards luxury cars. And if you're listening to this podcast in your car, trust me, you will never leave your vehicle in the same way again. Certainly not when you arrive at the office. I very much hope you enjoy this week's conversation. Giles, thank you so much for allowing me to come and have a conversation with you. Uh, can you just explain who are you? Where am I in the world? I've just driven through some beautiful countryside to get here. Where are we? Set the scene. Oh, you are in Sturminston Newton, which is kind of the old capital of Dorset. It's not actually the capital of Dorset. It should be. Um, Sturminston Newton, heart of the Blackmore Vale. I mean, we're looking out of the windows at the moment and it's just a beautiful place to do work because I can look out there and I can actually see trees, I can see pheasants and wildlife and all sorts of things. And this is where Olive's Italian is based. And my name's Giles. Giles, essentially, you kindly introduced me. Thanks ever so much for coming to see me. Um, yeah, you. I'm the founder, founder director of Olive's Italian. We've been going for 26 years. We've been in Sturminster since 2002, or Sturminster Newton since 2002. It's a great place to do business. It is. I came over. Is it Oakhampton Hill? I you came do, over the way. So the view that you get from the top of that because the whole of Dorset, the Blackmore Vale, kind of opens up. I, and I had to pull over. There's a little lay-by on the top yeah. on the right-hand side, there even though I was running about a minute late. And I thought, no, sod <laughs> it. I'm at the top of this hill. Literally, yeah. the, the view opened yeah. up before me and I stopped. It's, and I it's went, not the wow. best day to see the view, but I mean, on any day, it's absolutely it, stunning. It it's is a stunning part yeah, of yeah. the world. It so, is. Um, we're going to come uh, to what you do at the moment and, okay. and olives and much more. But um, I just want you, can you take me back to how it all began? I think 1993, can you just explain the story? How did this start? Yeah, of course. For my sins, I was in the army for 10 years, um, and I, I was a very bad lad at school and expelled by my headmaster, who happened to be my father, um, So, and then took myself off to college and got expelled again. 
and ended up going into the army, at which point my father was delighted because he said, brilliant, you're going to be an officer. I said, no, I'm not. And um, he insisted that I went to go and be an officer. So I did officer selection and failed dismally. You get three letters when you do officer selection. You get the A letter, which is wonderful. We think you're brilliant. Come and be a leader of men and have your chin removed and get a Volvo and a tank and a Labrador. And or you get the, and that's the immediate letter. Come immediately. And you get the B letter, which is, we don't think you're quite right just yet, but maybe go away and grow up a bit, then come back. Or you get the C letter. And the C letter is just never, ever darken our doors ever again. You often be, I don't know, just be a refuse collector something else uh, and I got the C letter at which point my father said you've been expelled twice once by me what are you going to do and I said well I'm going to do what I said I'm going to join the army he said well, you can't have you any idea what your name is I said yeah my name's Giles he said Giles what it was Giles Henshaw. He said, yeah, yeah, but Giles what, what? I said, well, Giles Hillary Henshaw. He said, exactly. Have you any idea what happens to people called Giles Hillary Henshaw who joined the army as a soldier? I said, no. He said, you can have that crap kicked out of you. <laughs> and I joined the army and did exactly what I said I was going to do. And he was absolutely right, I did. And I spent four years as a soldier in the Royal Engineers and then transferred from there and they discovered I was a failed officer. And I actually wanted to change my trade. And I, I wanted to become a, a plant operator mechanic, which is a digger driver. And at the time I was a sheet metal worker. And I said, please may I change my trade? They said, I'm, I'm, I'm awfully sorry, Corporal Henshaw. Um, we don't think you really have the sufficient intelligence uh, to be uh, a plant operator mechanic, but would you like to go to Sandhurst and be an officer? So hang on, wait a minute. So I can't drive a digger, but you want me to go to Santos and be a leader of men? And it's yes, we, we yes, because actually we just think you should bugger off, <laughs> anyway, out of here, and, yeah, and get away from us. Uh, which is what I did. So I disappeared off to Santos, got a commission into the Royal Signals, which is what brought me to Blandford. And when you when you get your posting from uh, from Sandhurst, you get a letter. And you open up the letter and think, where am I going to go? Where in the world have they posted me? Have they posted me to, oh, maybe to Germany or to Hong Kong or Australia or, uh, or maybe, maybe somewhere really nice like sort of Northern Ireland or, or where? And I've got Dorset. And I looked at this envelope and I said, Dorset? Dorset? What? What's in Dorset? And I discovered that 30 Signal Regiment, which is where it was then, was just about the best possible place you could be posted. I had an absolute ball. Uh, ended up leaving the army, and as you do, having done sort of 10 years, you, you, you kind of have an idea that I'm, I'm a captain, and I'm, I'm an officer, and therefore I'm going to be able to walk into another career really easily. And, and it just wasn't the case. It was 1990. And the height of the last recession was, was absolutely its peak. And I started to apply for jobs at sort of 150 grand a year and 150, 40, 30, 20, 80, 70, 60, 50, 40, 30, 20. And the last job I got rejected for was a second-hand car salesman in Clapham. Wow. And I'm living in London at the time. And I ended up as a charitable fundraiser. Uh, not one of the charity sort of chuggers in the, in the, in the street, but I, I ended up working for a charity. And... I fell in love with a girl from Dorset. And there's something about Dorset and there's something about uh, this particular place that when you first come here, there's a little piece of elastic that ties itself around you. You don't know it's done it, but it has. And you move away and sooner or later that elastic snaps you back. And it, it snapped me back. And I think it was, it was Annie, my, my, my business partner and wife, who, who the, she was the sort of the root and she was the thing that pulled me back. And she at the time had been working as a dancer and also on the airlines. And I had been in the army, as I said, and I'd been doing something else. I'm sorry, this is a very long-winded story. It's all part and parcel of the background, because I guess all of this sort of led towards the decision that we made, which was, I don't want to do what I'm doing anymore. Annie doesn't want to do what she's doing anymore. We both love 
motorcycling, and that was sort of a, a sort of a passion of ours. And we said, well, what should we do? Because we want to get married, but before we settle down and have kids, you've never been to university, I've never been to university, we've never had a gap year. We've gone straight from school, straight into work, and just work relentlessly. We're both around about 30 years old. Shall we take a gap year? We said, yeah, okay. So how are we going to fund it? So we sold everything. We sold a houseboat and a car and furniture and a flat up in Harrogate and everything we possibly could to raise enough money to go traveling. Bought the two motorbikes and went down to Gibraltar and kind of turned left. And the whole idea was to circumnavigate the whole of the Mediterranean basin. So we went up through Spain and then through France, down Italy, around Sicily, over into Greece, Greece into Turkey, Turkey into Syria, Syria down into Jordan, Jordan into the West Bank, West Bank into Israel. And just an amazing trip. And then finally down into Egypt and the Sinai Peninsula, then all the way down to Sudan and back out and up and through into Libya, got arrested and deported twice from Libya and then bumped our way back to the UK, flat broke, living in a bedsit in Southampton. And I was trying to start a business with uh, an, an army colleague of mine and it, it wasn't really working. And we realized that one of the things that we'd done on the trip was, you can't walk into a bar and just say to someone, hello, my name's Charles, this is Ali, can, can, can we sit and have a meal with you? Because they look at you like you're a nutter. But when food's brought to the table, you can ask questions about the food. And it's that common thing. It's like a social lubricant. You can say, oh, this is absolutely delicious. How have you made this one? And the one thing we always got, breakfast, dinner, lunch, and tea, was always an olive. There was always an olive on the plate somewhere. And we started to ask questions about, why does this one look like this? And why does this one look like that? And what have you done with this one? And people said, are you really interested? We said, well, yeah, we are, because the village up there, theirs were like this size. And now we, you've got these big, ginormous purple ones. What, what, what have you done? Well, this is ours and we're harvesting. Come, come and look at what we do. So we, we ended up joining in, not working for, for money, but joining in on harvests and in mills and, and looking at people's farmhouses and eating the olives in the same way that they prepared them. And we just realised that the whole essence of the region that we've been travelling through was, was the olive. And it's the olive and the olive tree and olive oil and all the symbolism and all of the spirituality and all of the history and sacredness that actually goes with the olive. It's, it, it's just rich and steeped in the entire region. So when we arrive back and we're living in this bedsit in Southampton, utterly depressed because we're now travelling, well, we've finished travelling, still got the two motorbikes, we haven't got any money, we can't afford to, to go out. So we said, I know what we'll do. We'll put the tent up in the garden and we'll go into town, we'll go and buy some nice wine and some nice bread and some nice olives and we'll come back and sit in a tent and just imagine just for one night, just for one night that we're travelling again. So we did that, we went into town and we found the bread, found the wine, bought some olives, came back, put up the tent, sat in the tent, drank the wine, ate the bread and spat the olives out because it's absolutely vile. And they were incredibly salty, incredibly briny, incredibly vinegary, bitter. And we realised that this is the olive in its raw state. And this is the olive. Once it's actually been cured, once it's been taken from the tree, and it's, that is effectively now the raw ingredient. You can eat it like that, but it doesn't taste very good. And that's one of the reasons why so many people sort of said, I really don't like olives. Because when people would come round to our bedsit, we'd, uh, we'd invite them in, sort of say, you, you know, do you want an olive? No, I can't stand olives, actually, thanks. I, I really don't like them at all. I said, well, okay. Do you want a glass of wine? Yeah, I have a glass of wine. So three or four glasses of wine in. I said, you know, you've been eating olives all evening and I've always wanted to like olives. Can I try one? Yeah, of course you can. And they'd eat it. And it was an olive that we'd actually used some of the recipes on and we'd have these buckets fermenting away in our bedsit. And they'd eat the olive and they'd say, 
that's incredible. I never knew an olive could taste like this. Fantastic. You should sell those. I said, dummies are stupid. Nobody in England likes olives. No, but they don't like the olives they can buy, but we can't buy these. These are completely different. And because of, I guess, we've taken all that time, care and attention, we've been using those, those recipes that date back around about 6,000 odd years. They did taste completely different. It was completely new on the market. So eventually we plucked up enough courage and we put our last sort of money into enough jars and enough olives and we bumped our way to the Rural Living Show in Bath on the 28th of October 1993. And three days later we came back with £1,875.60p. Wow. I thought, this is brilliant. And we didn't realise it was unusual because it was our first show. We, we were kind of six deep on the, tr on the trade stand, on the, on, the, on the stand. We thought this was perfectly normal. And everybody else said, you guys are doing really well, are we? I have no idea, it's great. And I, I have to say that we, we really didn't know what we were doing because the jars that we used were these old recycled uh, glass jars with really big wide necks with a cork in the top. And the cork was ill-fitting and uh, the oil used to leak out. We'd pass it over to these lovely ladies and sort of say, please, whatever you do, don't, don't tip the jar. And they'd say, okay, love you, yeah, it's fine. Put it into the bag, you see this trail of oil across the floor. I think the show organisers hated us, but, but we had a great time. And we came back in the van and we said, well, that, that was great fun. Should we do that again? I said, well, yeah, why not? And that's kind of 26 years ago, and here we are. Amazing. Still yeah, there. Good. Well, we'll find out what happened next. So how yeah. long were you away for? We were away for just under 12 months. Okay. So, yeah, nearly nice. a year. So our, it was our marital home. It was a, it was a tent. Yeah, <laughs> lovely. And you've still got the bikes. I still got the bikes, yeah. Still use them? St absolutely. We did. Funny enough, but last year, um, we had our 25th wedding anniversary, and we decided we were going to do 25 extraordinary things or remarkable things, I mean, personal things to us. One of those was, because we still had the bikes, we wanted to go and do our uh, Institute of Advanced Motorists. So we wanted to do our IAM uh, motorcycle, advanced motorcycle test. And when you sign up to go and do that, uh, it, it can take you quite a while because you have to go and do a number of observed rides. So you have an observer. And we said to our observer, we want to do it as a married couple. So what do you mean? Well, we've got two bikes and we want to do every ride together. So for the first time, we had two vintage, oh, effectively veteran bikes that One's 28 years old now, the other one's about 27 years old. What are they? I've got to ask. Aren't They're BMW R100 GSs. There will be people out there that know what those yeah, are. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, they are quite key because they, they're the original forerunners of uh, the old Paris-Dakar um, rally bikes. That's what they're actually designed for. And we chose those bikes specifically because they're incredibly reliable. Um, and we just knew they'd be bomb-proof. And we did 38,000 miles on the trip, one puncture, no other issues, wow. none at all. Amazing. So yeah, we still got them. Yeah. And, and as part of our 25th wedding anniversary, we, we did, we signed up to do the Institute of Advanced Motorcycling and then 10 rides later, which took us about 10 months to do, uh, we rocked up and both did our test on the same day and both passed. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. Good. But, well, thank you. Yeah, First time I think the IM had ever had that. It was, really? It was, yeah, nice thing. Excellent. Yeah. That's good. Um, and then, so, so back then, this is a really, like, I, I agree with you 100%. I think the only olives I would probably had as a kid was that one that used to come in the middle of a pizza and you'd, you'd kind of like take it off straight away, certainly as a child, and throw it away. And it was yeah. a horrible, rancid kind of thing. Um, but what other Mediterranean-style food around then? You, you were presumably trailblazing that kind of food. Well, was there much competition in the market when you came into it? Almost none. Um, to be perfectly honest, the, the Fresh Olive Company were the only other company out there. They're now called Bella Zoo, And they were the only other people out there. But they were based in London, and we were based we were based in Southampton, and then we were based in Mere, and then we were based at, or in Wilton, then in Mere, and then in, in Sturminster. So we are out in the provinces. And we, our route to market was doing uh, consumer shows, but they were craft shows. 
So we'd rock up to the rural um, living show or the rural crafts association shows, and badminton horse trials, birdie horse trials, and we were unique. There was virtually nobody else doing food. And they used to say to us in those days, well, you, you can't come because you have to make what you sell. Well, what do you think we do? Do you think we just bring it in like this? This is an artisan business that we've, that we've got here. And we, we met the guys from Food from Britain, and we tried to join Food from Britain, which is government initiative. Well, you can't because you're not British. So, what do you mean? Well, it's an olive, isn't it? It's not a British food. So, well, in what way is it not British? We pay our taxes here. It's made with Dorset knowledge, Dorset know-how, Dorset skill. We bring it to Dorset. We find the ingredients all over the world. We bring them here. We add all the value. How come that's not now proudly British? And we, we won the argument in the end. But it was quite a struggle in those days because we were, we were deemed to be importers. And we're not. We, we buy our ingredients from all over the place and bring them here. But everything is made here. Yeah. So okay. yeah, it's it's an it's an interesting thing that in those days there was no competition. There were virtually no other people actually on the craft show circuit doing food. And gradually, in the first five years, I suppose of our existence, gradually more and more and more people, and we kind of were the the, the forerunners. But. Uh, I was going to say, presumably, if there's, there's, there's no competition, there's also a very limited market because a lot of people, I guess, didn't know this food and didn't try it. So how have people's tastes evolved? Because Hugely it, so. And, and, and why? The, the interesting thing for us was, and it, and it wasn't until probably we'd been going for around about 10 years, I suddenly realised how influential Olive Zetal as a business has been. Because when you're standing behind a show stand and you've got consumers, the members of the public in front of you, you have no idea who they are, none whatsoever. And you, you suddenly realise there's a guy sort of bouncing a two-year-old up and down on his shoulders and just looking, and he's just sort of standing there. And he comes over and says, this is really interesting, do you mind if I try one? He tries one, disappears, doesn't buy anything. And then you, you realise that he's actually a buyer who works in a multiple like a Sainsbury's or a Waitrose or an Asda or a Tesco's. And he goes back in on Monday morning, he says, do you know what, it's really interesting my weekend. I, I was out with my wife, we went to this craft show. The guy who had all the interest in front of him was the guy selling olives, can you believe it? Olives, in this country, we really need to do something with that. There was nobody on the jam stand, nobody on the fudge stand. Everybody that was actually clustered around there, he was 16. He, he couldn't put him in a bag fast enough. We need to do something. They didn't approach us. They then went to their suppliers and 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 it, it helped. I was influence. expecting a really good news end of that story where you no, said, but then no, they no, gave no. me millions of pounds, Mark, and I've lived happily ever after. Do you know what? <laughs> we regularly used to get mail orders. Our, our, our philosophy was always to say yes. Um, can you do mail order? Yes. Uh, can you supply my deli? Yes. Uh, can you put olives in a small plastic bag and vacuum pack them? Yes. And we would just do everything that we were asked to do. And. I realised we, we got a, we got a, had a couple of mail orders arrive, and one was uh, from a nameless company, but they ordered one single one of every single one of our products. Um, it was being delivered to a business address. When I researched the business, they're supplying to the multiples, and they were just basically buying our product because they've probably been asked to do so, and then engineering it and supplying it into the multiples. And we obviously look quite hip. We're standing in a damp marquee in the middle of a muddy field and a supermarket buyer's going to say, well, they can't provide me what I want, So, but I love the idea of the product. So great, I'll go over here to, to the people that I know have got nice Chinese stainless steel kitchens and big factories. Mm. So, little, little did they know that you had the authenticity, I guess, where you'd gone off and met the person with the 6,000-year-old recipe and were actually 
doing, I presume the product at the end of the day comes out very different with that knowledge. And, and, and is, the, is, is the stuff, is, is the recipes that you learned back then, have they stayed relevant? Are you still using the same ones that you bought in in our, 1990s? Our best selling olive, it's the most popular one, which is our sunshine mix, which is rosemary, garlic, and sun dried tomatoes, is still. 26 years on since we started to make it, it's still our best-selling product above all else into every single sector. So it's the one that, that still outsells everything else. And the second one is um, classic, chili, garlic, bay and black pepper. And that one is our second best. That one came from Ragusa down in Sicily. And it was a lovely guy called Giatano Amato who actually gave us his family recipe, which had been passed down through generations. And we're still making exactly the same recipe today. Amazing. And then we do one with cumin, coriander and cardamom. That was given to us by uh, a Syrian Bedouin chief um, in a little village called Mascana just outside Aleppo. Uh, so these recipes were passed on and uh, we, we, we're still trying to honour exactly that. Yeah, that's brilliant. And how easy is it then? So when they go to the uh, the stainless steel kind of you know guy that's going to mass produce this in its thousands, can they replicate that? And uh, and, and and have they learned to? Or what's still special yeah, about your about what you do? Ninety nine percent of all of our the products that we um, manufacture here in Sturminster, they're raw. We use no heat treatments, no pasteurizing, no uh, no antioxidant or no 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 unnecessary chemicals or preservatives. We use no artificial ingredients, no uh, no sodium benzoates. No, no, I don't know how to use them. Um, we were taught completely differently. If you if you go back sort of 150 years ago, uh, we didn't pasteurize food. We hadn't discovered pasteurizing. We hadn't discovered sterilizing. Some people, sure, died of food poisoning, but by and large, the population existed. Otherwise, you and I wouldn't be sitting here in this conversation. They understood how to preserve and conserve food. And that's why we get preserves or conserves. We, it's in the name of the jam. I mean, you preserve the glut of food for, to enjoy in the leaner seasons. You conserve things so that you can eke it out over the course of the year. They had to learn those techniques. Now, obviously, jam and conserves and preserves are actually heated. But the Mediterranean didn't have refrigeration. They didn't have the, the, the similar sorts of things that we had now. They had no pasteurizing. You only get one olive harvest a year. So how did they then cure it and then keep it until the next harvest came along? How did they learn how to ferment it and cure it? Well, they did, and that's exactly what we're doing. We're using exactly the self-same techniques. The, the only difference between 6,000 years ago and what you see downstairs is, yeah, we've got more stainless steel, more white coats and, and more lab checks and those sorts of things to guarantee what we do. But we are unique in being able to produce a long life, shelf stable, unpasteurized raw olive packed into extra virgin olive oil that still is kind of exactly the same as you would have had three, four, five thousand years ago. Amazing. I am a very recent convert to olives, having, really? having eaten the, the rubbish stuff for years. Yeah, despite even being in the trade, I think I just had too many bad memories as a kid. Uh, and it was brilliant walking well, we, into the shop downstairs and seeing, uh, you know, the variety and, and uh, yeah. Well, we do over brilliant. 40 different recipes of loose olive. Yeah, really? Wow. And we could easily do 80. We could easily do 200. Um, but, but it's kind of unnecessary. Um, you, you can add all sorts of things to them. So it, it's almost endless. Yeah. But we, we, we're still trying to stick with old favourites and we introduce new ones every now and again. But nice. So, so to continue yeah. that journey, you've, you've come yeah. back, you've done a few shows. Uh, how does it, how does it, what's the next stage? How does it start to actually turn into well, a business? Well, the, we, we started the business in 1993. In 1994, we find ourselves at the Country Living Fair in the Business Design Centre in Islington. 
to the Country Living magazine, and it's a, it's it's a very glitzy place. It's it's incredible, and we we're rammed. It, it, this is a, an amazing show. It's really 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 busy. I've got the bowls of olives out myself and Annie are there, and we've got this. It's a very hick stand. It's sort of green netting, green netting with raffia wrapped around it, and and in chilies we've depicted the name olives at all. It's I, I, oh, when I think back to it, it was so sort of amateurish, really. But it was lovely, and it was authentic. It was it was genuine, and we were we were always very resourceful. So our table, our stand was a couple of wine boxes with an upturned tabletop on it with an old tablecloth. So. But we had our bowls of olives in front, and one of the things I, I've always hated, even though you would do it when you're in your own home, but when you're actually out, I hate it when people stick their fingers in the bowls of olives. And we have signs that, that sort of say, please don't use your fingers, please ask us for an olive stabber. And people just used to ignore them. And we'll, we'll talk more about why they actually ignored them later on maybe. But there was a very pregnant lady who came past the stand and she didn't engage with us, she didn't look at us, she just put her fingers into the bowl and just ate an olive and just walked on. And that, that sort of really, really does rile me. So the next time she came back, I was just about to say something to her, but she'd eaten one and gone before I could say anything. The third time she came back, I was really just about to, to be quite forceful. And she just leaned over and said, do you supply the trade? I said, well, yes, of course we do. My demeanor changing instantly, of course. <laughs> and she pulled the card out of her back pocket and she passed it over. And I looked at it and her name was Katrina Weston and she's the food development director of Fortnum & Mason. Okay. Which was amazing. She said, these are the best olives I've, I've ever tasted. I've never tasted anything quite like this. And I've obviously eaten olives all over the world. These are incredible. Will you supply Fortnum & Mason? We said, yes, of course we will. And that was 25 years ago. And I guess that was the moment that suddenly we had credibility. Someone who really knew what they were doing, I mean, we, we kind of didn't, we, we're still doing what we know how to do. But this was somebody who really knew the food industry and really knows food with an exquisite palate and a, and a, and a massive understanding who was telling us that this is good enough to be on Fortnum Mason, the world's oldest grocery store, or the UK's oldest grocery store, three, over 300 years old, and she wants them on her shelves. Th that was the thing we said. Wow, that was the moment, the yeah. eureka moment, we might be onto something here. Yes. And at that point, are you still making them in, in, in your garage? Is there, or have you, by this point, are you, you, know, are you running it commercially? Or? At that time, we were actually um, living in a little place called Stapleford, just outside Wilton. And we were living in a two-up, two-down Cobb cottage. And we had bought a catering trailer, which was outside, which the HO would all approve and everything else, but that's where we were making it. So Fort and Mason's first orders actually arrived from there. We moved very shortly after that, and we moved into our first unit. And so, yes, we had something a little bit more glitzy uh, then to actually supply them from. Okay. But, Sorry, go on. No, I was going to say, and now, so, so from there, that, that gave you the leg up and the credibility, because quite often, I think, selling to these kind of places, that, that's not actually massively profitable, although maybe it was, but it does give you at least the credibility that opens numerous doors, isn't it? It, it gave us the confidence to continue, because up until that time, it was kind of, we were still doing it for pin money. Um, I was still um, thinking about going into another career and being a trainer. 
And this was the, the, the moment that suddenly said, do you know what? There really is something in this. I don't want to go and be a trainer. I, I want to be an Olivier. I want to create something out of this business and really, really take it on. So I came then full time into the business. And up until that time, I'd been doing probably three days a week, four days a week selling and training up in London. And Annie would be bottle, bottle, bottle. And I'd, I'd come back and we'd sell, sell, sell. So all of a sudden, it then turned into a seven-day-a-week business full-time. Okay. And it's kind of remained that, I would say. <laughs> Did you, was your dad impressed by this point? Or did he thought, finally, you're yeah, not yeah. going to be expelled? He was like, uh, okay, yeah. you've, you, no, you, you've found something. Yeah, good. Um, so now, are there any particular places that you see your, your olives sold that kind of, you know, have, have, have ever surprised you? Where you've gone, oh, my goodness, that's mine, or that make you particularly proud? Because they are now... I don't know, where do they go? Are they global or uh, at least across the country? Uh, they certainly do travel across the country. The furthest south um, that I know that we supply is on the Isle of Tresco, so the Isles of Scilly, and we also go up as far as the Isles of Shetland and all points in between. So yes, it's lovely to see them out there and it's lovely to think that they actually do travel. I mean, there's a lot more competition now and it, it's, it's really interesting because we ring maybe somebody in Yorkshire that we used to supply and they'll say, no, we're buying olives uh, from a local company because we want local olives. Uh, that, that I, I'm always fascinated when I hear that because I've been banging on about us, ours olives coming from Dorset. Of course they don't because the raw ingredient we, we bring from overseas. But we're, no, we're kind of still local to Yorkshire in the same way that somebody who's just outside Yorkshire would be still local. I'm probably not making any sense there, yeah, but, but yeah, yeah, you, yeah, you get yeah. the picture. No, I do. It, it, yeah. it comes down to the quality. So um, to actually source the yeah. uh, ingredients, then, do you still travel a lot? Are you using contacts from when you were traveling, or did you have to go out and find We are still using the, I mean, the, the, the contacts that we had when we were traveling, quite a number of them are retired by now, but they're family companies. So we're still involved in the self-same companies that we were involved with, yeah, right at the very beginning. Not all of them. Uh, for sure, every year we find you and we travel to, to different places. Uh, funny enough, uh, Ian, Ian Martin, one of my colleagues, is going out to Greece next week with another one of my colleagues, Lawrence, and they're actually going out to go and look at new supply and go and meet existing suppliers, have a look at this year's harvest and talk about the contracts that we're into. It's very nice that you let other people do that, but it sounds like the best bit. I've got this sort of romantic vision of you just hopping on your motorbike and going, ah, we, we're a bit short on olives this week, I'm just going to nip down and uh, yeah, find some I more still do. wine chatting to 2,000-year-old well, Syrians. I'm flying out to Bahrain. <laughs> next weekend are you which is why I'm not going to Greece okay <laughs> oh, well, I, I thought you were being very kind and allowing your team to do it, it. well I'm sure you do I still I still every time you go on holiday um, it doesn't matter where I go I always seem to find olives I went to Namibia on, uh, on a family holiday uh, about a year and a half two years ago found olives yeah I think it's, 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 it's really yeah. permanent busman's holidays. Every time I go into a restaurant, every time I weigh, every time I'm traveling, it is permanent. Of course, it is. But, but, but isn't that the way that our industry is? It's it's, it's great. I was in Italy uh, skiing mm. a few weeks ago, and the conversations that you get to have. You know, I was I was in awe of the uh, the hotel that I was staying and how they managed to serve all of the customers. It was yeah. a, a sort of half board thing, and they and, and I was in God. I would I would need to stagger. You know, I can't help it. I'm sat there. Going, I would definitely have staggered the uh, the arrival <laughs> time with all the people <laughs> that arriving there. But I was so impressed with with the speed that the waiters yeah. and waitresses could ramp up service as everybody came in at the same time and I was in awe and I'd end up chatting to the waiters and waiters and my god you guys are really good at your job and they'd be like who's this odd guy and I'd go no really and you'd end up chatting about the fact that's yeah. what you do for a living and then and then the service I got was incredible and I think that that respect that you've got for people who work in the industry mm. uh, yeah and I'm sure it's the same as you're going around uh, again romantically imagining you driving through the, the, the streets of the med or the villages and kind of yeah needing to pop in and meet those suppliers and stuff like that So because it's all about human beings at the end of the day isn't it it's about contacts and people 
people. But the whole, yeah, I mean, the whole business is actually about communications. It has to be. And we could not do what we do without the people that actually exist within the business. We, you, you can't. We can't do it without customers, consumers, can't do it without uh, the people who actually put the olives into the jars downstairs, who actually grade every single olive and inspect every single one. We couldn't do it without any of those. And it's one of the things that, uh, I, I guess that's part of the reason why we're having this conversation, it's one of those, those hidden things. You just don't really think about it. You pick up a jar of olives on a supermarket shelf and you put it in your basket, you go home and you pour yourself a, a martini or a gin and tonic, you put an olive in it, and you don't think about where that's actually come from. You don't think about all the hands that have actually had to be involved, all the, the various steps and various stages. And I think too often then these things become a commodity and we subconsciously eat them, we open the jar or the tin and, and people don't think about it. Well, I, was, I was sat with yeah. um, Claire from Chococo yeah, yeah. Uh, chatting earlier yeah. and uh, very much having that conversation around chocolate and that, you know, it used to be the case on the continent and still is that you'd go into these shops and you would, you know, they'd all be on display and you'd hand pick them and they'd be boxed and it was a real kind of feeling but and it, an indulgence. But that is one of the biggest annoyances is when the product that you put so much love, care, time and attention into becomes a commodity. And it, it you are just driven down on price constantly. And I guess that the food industry is a bit like the car industry. You have all sorts of different grades and costs of cars. And no one ever really, and this is where the disparity comes along, no one ever really says, oh gosh, a Rolls-Royce, that's very expensive. We all know a Rolls-Royce is expensive. And when people sort of say, oh, your olives are very expensive or your chocolate is very expensive, well, compared to what? What are you comparing it to? Are you comparing eggs with eggs? Because if you're comparing our olives to another one that is raw and is um, hand-sorted and double-fermented, or so fully, matured, fully matured and fully fermented, and has actually been hand-graded and sorted and then placed into a jar and is an extra virgin olive oil, and you're comparing it with a green olive that's been dyed black and then sterilized and then fixed with ferrous gluconate and produced in vast quantities, you're not really comparing apples with apples. So how do you, you're, you're, you're 100% right. How do you get that message out there then? Because Continual education. And, and without wanting to preach, because this is one of the worst things you can possibly do. People don't understand. You, you've just got to take people, and again, I really hate the phrase, but you've got to kind of take them on the journey of where these things come from and tell stories about the particular products. There's, there's an Ottoman fortress in Ajloon in Jordan. And I was there a, um, a year or two ago. And it's this immaculate fortress that was built in 1184 by Saladin's nephew. You know, we've heard of Saladin, and Saladin's nephew built this fortress in 1184. And people go to Ajloon because it is one of the best preserved fortresses, Ottoman fortresses, and they peer around the ramparts. And all around it, the slopes leading up to this fortress, there are olive groves. And as is my want, I was standing on the fortress and I looked down and I saw this, this farmer and I thought, I'm just going to go and have a chat with him because he looks interesting. Yeah. And I'm bored of the fortress. Yeah, I was going to say, the fortress. Sod the there's fortress. some olive trees. Yeah, there's some olive trees. And I went down and I introduced myself and I, I speak a little bit of Arabic, but not enough. And I had somebody with me who did and discovered this guy's name was Rateb Rate. He was 63 years old and he'd been working these trees. He'd been looking after these trees since he was 14 years old. His son was about seven. And he said, my, my son shortly will be taking over because my time will be done. And I said, Rata, how old are your trees? He said, 2,500, 2,600 years old. Wow. I said, hang on, just to put this into context then, that fortress is, was built in 1184. That's only 900 or so years ago. Yes. And these trees are 2,500 years old. Yes. 
So when Saladin's nephew arrived, these trees were already 1,400 years old. Yes. And they're still producing fruit to this day. Yes. He said, so these are your trees? He said, no, they're not mine. Not mine. He said, I'm just the steward from one generation to the next and the next and the next. Mm-hmm. And it is incredible because we don't think about the longevity. We don't. No, no, and that's, that's, it's, it's beautiful. And, and had that been a, I don't know what the traditions are there, but does that tend to be a family tradition that it's been passed on multi generation? Yeah, generation. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, we, we sometimes hear about olive trees being uprooted and we just think, oh, somebody's just bulldozed, a, you know, bulldozed an orchard. They haven't. You've actually stripped someone's absolute livelihood and heritage that goes back generations. It's deliberately why it's done because they know just how important the family's olive trees are to them. Mm, amazing, and that yeah. sense of responsibility. I've, I've chatted to a few people, and that sense of responsibility that I think you have, where you know, with kids, you don't necessarily want your kids to do what the family have always done because you want them to get their own personalities and go off and fulfil their dreams. Yeah. But I think how exciting it must be as a parent when your kids do start to show an interest. And chatting to Kerry in the 1910 herd of pedigree cows that have been looked after and milked twice a day every day and you think oh there's so much love and work and passion that goes into that and what a shame when we lose it Mm. so um is it two by the way as a matter of interest an olive tree that's 2400 years old i find it amazing that they're still fruiting but does that make a difference to the to the quality of the olive as well i mean it it clearly knows what it's doing if it's been doing it for that long the, yeah, I mean, they say olive trees are, I mean, we won't get involved in the whole story, but I mean, olive trees are a bit like humans. For the first few years of their life, they don't know who they are and what they do. They don't do anything, don't give you anything back. By the time they reach sort of 10, they're beginning to develop a character and they're beginning to become a little bit productive. By the time they're 15, then they actually know what they're about. And by the time they're 21, they're at full maturity, so they begin to produce. However, by the time that life or man reaches 80, he's reaching the end of his mortal coil and begins to shuffle off. This olive tree's just kind of getting into its stride, just getting into its stride. And for year after year, generation after generation, hundreds upon hundreds of years, they will continue to produce. Maybe not with the same energy and vigor of previous years, but they're getting bigger and they're developing more. And they're just magnificent, absolutely magnificent things. And the oldest tree that I know is 3,200 years old, still producing, planted by the Minoans. But if you think about it, when you stand underneath that tree, the number of people that have tended to it, the families, the whole, whole empires have risen and fallen since that tree was, was a sapling. Mm-hmm. It is, it is it is. I need to go I, I, I'm loving this this gen I love learning and, and that's yeah. literally blowing my mind but I feel the need now to go out and have a chat with some uh, yeah some people who run the olive trees I need to come out with you I'm going to come I'm going to get my bike out and I'm going to I'm going to come down well the next you. time we go and do a full moon harvest you can come oh, and come, gonna come yeah the humans yeah, yeah. of hospitality goes and yeah let's take it back even further let's let's take it to the to the people who are actually growing the stuff abroad it'd be really mm. exciting um, so over the years then this has developed you've been doing this a long time now you must have seen some a, some huge changes, I suppose, in the marketplace, yep. um, but also some some huge changes, I'm guessing, in your business. I'm guessing it's, it's kind of uh, grown. Can you just explain to me some of the yeah, some of the stuff that's happened in the last 20 years, both to the market and then both to your personal business and how you've responded to that? Have you got to a certain size and retracted? Have you always been hmm. on a continual kind of ever growth? Just explain to me how that's we, worked. We kind of enjoyed that, that wonderful hockey stick growth for probably the first 15 years or so. And it was just a sort of exponential, almost doubling year on year on year on year. I mean, from a very small base until uh, I guess we hit uh, a bit of a plateau. And that was in about 2010, 2012. And since then, we probably have stayed more or less static. Um, 
we, we've tried going into retail. We opened up five retail sites. We, we have two of our own and we opened up three more, which is a, a, an absolute catastrophe. It was just a total disaster. Um, these were shops on high streets? Or? No, they were, they were actually within garden centres. And it, okay. it just didn't work. It really didn't. Uh, plenty of sales, but also mass, mass theft on an absolute grand scale. Uh, because garden centres are actually, funny enough, quite, quite leaky places, unfortunately. And they're targeted by all sorts of people. And yeah, we, we were losing huge amounts of stock so we we closed those and I guess that was the point at which we uh, we lost our focus a bit and lost our way and the last few years have been sort of felt like a little bit of a wilderness I think if I'm totally honest and <coughs> it, it has been difficult to maintain and to, to to bring fresh blood into the business that gets the ethos that understands the the values that we have and have developed and really hold true to ourselves and it would be wonderful if you walked straight in through the door and they were immediately imprinted upon you but it's a constant uh, a constant battle I suppose uh, battle is maybe the wrong word it's maybe too hard but it's a constant thing that you have to keep on doing to remind people of the heritage of the business and how how important our customers are and how important communication is we were discussing just now about people everything in our, in our business is about people and the only way in which you can create relationships is how you communicate with them and it's all too easy to send a curt email and uh, I think one of the things you said, sort of what's changed, our reliance on different communications methods, whether that be Instagram or Facebook or uh, uh, Twitter or any of those things. But I remember 20 years ago or 25 years ago when we first started, computers, there wasn't a computer on every desk. There now is. And as life has actually gone on over the last few years, I'm now noticing that most people within businesses sit static at a desk and communicate through a screen. And that's not communication. I mean, an email is not communication. It's not a valid form. It's a great way of sort of keeping the score, fine. But it's not the same as having a face-to-face -face dialogue with somebody and you can't express emotion in an email because you don't know what the emotion is that's being received at the other end. People send an email and sort of say, I sent you an email 10 minutes ago. Why haven't you responded? And how arrogant is it of us as the sender to think that somebody is just sitting there waiting for my email to arrive and busily coming back? It's an immense arrogance. It's, it's, the phone is an interrupting tool. Nobody is sitting there waiting for the phone to ring with you at the other end of it. So when you do, it's only courtesy just to sort of say, I'm really sorry to bother you, but could I just have two minutes of your time? And maybe not now, do you mind if I give you a call when, when it's convenient? And I, I think that a lot of modern communication, a lot of the courtesy, has gone. A lot of the good manners, a lot of the, the fun wit and humour has gone out of communication. And that's what we're about, what we're trying to bring back. Yeah, so uh, particularly the front-facing side of the industry. I think at the point that you're with the consumer and the consumer is enjoying your product, yeah. and particularly in, in, in my trade, you know, with the restaurant trade, uh, oh, it scares me. You know, we're seeing it at the moment that and you kind of you understand why we're even having to look at it ourselves because of the because of price and the pressure on price and the yeah. price point. But you know, people are now walking into restaurants and ordering their food on their phones and paying on their phones, and the the, the food gets delivered to the table, and there's been no human interaction. And, and I get it because people are in a hurry and they want stuff fast. But it terrifies me that you know, hospitality the same is thousands of years old. You know, we had a responsibility. But in that case, are people then coming into your restaurants just to eat? 
Uh, just to, to refuel, because that's effectively what it is, isn't it? So refuel, it's a refueling stop. Well, it's potentially. Well, some people are. Like yeah, some people yeah, are coming yeah. in to spend time with their family. But then if there's a recognition of that. But it, but surely going to a restaurant is actually about the overall experience, the ambience that the place actually gets, and the, the buzz uh, that there is, and the happy sound of conversation, and uh, plates clinking and clacking. And I, I always think that whenever, if you, if you go into a restaurant and the food is the hero, the company must be rubbish. Because... The food should always be at the at the level of appropriate expectation in my mind. You know, the food comes, yeah, it's great, yeah, how's your video? It's lovely. But you're having a conversation about stuff and you're having Absolutely. a really good time. Yeah. When it actually becomes the, the, the centre of attention, either it is so above expectation yeah. that it has to be commented on or you've got a waiter sort of knocking on your table and said, the chef would like you to know yeah. that yeah. this is actually an escalope of... It's the, it's the art rather than the science of the restaurateur. I think chefs will be yeah. obsessed by the food. Of and course. I think it's all about the food and you're absolutely right. It's not. It's about every little touch point and, and, and everything you can see yeah, and, it's and the, the food, food is just one of those touches one of those things and, and that's, the, that's the challenge of hospitality and restaurants is there's hundreds of these yeah. touch points and it's the ambience of the music it's how the waiter was talking to it's the comfort of the seat but you're right it should be about the conversation and who you're with and whilst I mean, hopefully, the degree of, uh, of enthusiasm and dedication and devotion I've got to my product comes through but underlying all of that it, it's customer service and customer delight and profit. If we don't deliver the vehicle whereby our customers are going to make a profit by stocking our product, we're not there. We have to keep an eye on that. And as heartless as that sounds, we have got to be able to produce a product at a particular price that people are willing to pay for and willing to sell at another price so that they can then make profit. And in between times, we've got to provide customer delight. Yeah. And, and every single touch point, as you say, is absolutely critical. Yeah. And profit's a wonderful thing in the fact that it creates all of this. You know, I don't know that sometimes we feel guilty about profit, but you know, all of these stories we're talking about, that, that guy who's been looking after those olives for two and a half thousand years, you know, there has to be some profit in there for, for him to pay, to be paid, for him to look after his family, yeah. and for, you know, for all of these great adventures and these stories mm. and everything that's happened, you know, profit is and, it. And that's part of the problem, because it is getting harder and harder and harder to actually make margin. And to, and to make profit. And I'm sure you will, you will have heard that numerous times uh, doing this. And because, is it because we don't value our food? Is it because we are nervous about the discounters actually re reducing price? I think it's something like uh, 30 or 40 years ago, we spent about 30% of our gross income on feeding ourselves. That's now contracted to less than 10%. Six or something like that. Yeah, it's, it's less than 10%. I mean, where does that end? I mean, the race to the bottom is one of the most depressing. It is, yeah. Things. And the odd thing with that is and that when it all becomes about price, well, where's the soul? Where's where's the heart? Where's where's actually the joy in doing what you do? If it's just I just need two pence off that. I feel like giving you a little hug, Giles, because oh, I share you. your, your, your <laughs> perspective so wholeheartedly. And, it, and, and the scary thing with that is that if, we, if we're going to race to the bottom on price of something that we're actually putting in our body, which is actually giving us our, our energy and our vibrancy and our ability to be a human being, then we're going to do it with everything, I think, aren't we? But hopefully we're yeah. not, because that's well, kind of the point not. of this conversation and the conversations we're having, is to get people... To make decisions well, if we can consciously. stimulate people to think that little bit more. Yeah. And... Uh, and it's a lovely conversation, by the way, because it resonates in so many ways, all the sort of conversations that you're having. And so I take my hat off for actually doing this series in the first place. It's a wonderful thing to do. Right. Well, I'm very conscious. When I speak to people consciously, when they're in their conscious frame of mind, and I say, you know, and I, and I chat <laughs> well, with, yeah. and, and they get fed up with me ranting, and my friends are like, oh, God, he's off again, here he goes. And, and particularly because my friends, you know, I've got friends who 
who turn up at my house and we're having a, a dinner or whatever. And, and you know, the, it always makes me laugh because they know I'm about you know quirky, independent you know um, businesses. So some of you know, the beers that I get, well, most of the time, you know, I'm not perfect, and sometimes I'll just go into a bar and I want a pint of Peroni or something. But if you come into my house, generally my fridge will be stocked full of really interesting British kind of micro brewers, and and then I've got my mates who turn up with their like you know six pack of Fosters or something like that. And literally, I don't, I want to shut the door and like, come on, and you've come you've come to my house. Um, so so I get it, but my point is is that when I ask them, when I say, look, you know, think about you know, like you know what you do and your kids, and and do you want the world to become beige, and do you want to go down a high street? I know when I ask them where they go on holiday, you know, they talk about going abroad and they love going abroad. And I, I've probably told this story before, and sorry to any listeners if I've, if I've said it on air, but I remember one of the triggers for this podcast is I went over to uh, to the Alps on a cycling trip, yeah. and I was I got there really early in the morning, it was about half six in the morning. Yeah. And I arrived in the Alps. We'd driven all through the night, and we were at the base of Alpes and we were going to cycle that day. And we popped into one of the little coffee shops at the base, and uh, and there's five or six. Uh, uh, coffee shops in, in Bourg-Dossant excuse my French and, uh, and and they were such a vibrancy and energy even at that time of the morning people were coming in and the French were buying their espressos and their croissants and their patisserie and I sat there and I thought oh my god I'm in heaven and I could see four or five other places around the village where people were going in and I was like at home everybody's going into a Costa's or a Starbucks or going even worse they're going into the garage on the way to work and they're buying their stuff I was like oh, how geez. have we lost that how have we lost that, that, you know, and why haven't we lost it in Europe? And when I say to these people, you know, they're like, oh yeah, I love going abroad because that's what I see. I said, great, so you love it, you know it's important. You but know we're, it's told, we're, we're told that people love shopping in independent high streets. Yes, we are, and if you ask them, they say, yes, they are, and then yeah, you say, where you did you last year you're shopping? And exactly. they say, wherever it yeah. was. I'm not allowed to mention too many brand names because I get in but, trouble. Uh, you know, I, I talk to people and, and they say, what do you do? Oh, I've got a little food business. Oh, what was that? Oh, Olive Zetel. Oh, I love Olive Zetel. Your deli is it's just lovely. When was the last time you came in? Exactly. Yeah. Oh, I haven't been in for a while. Yeah. yeah so, uh, they say they love the high street, they but do. we don't support it enough. We don't, we don't yeah. shop in it. Yeah. And because, yes, it's more expensive. And, and oh, I bumped into so and so and little. Of course, you bumped into so and so and little because we're all using it. Yeah. We're all doing it. We're all guilty of it. We are. Um, where do we where do we buy our meat? Do we buy it from the local butcher down downtown, or do we go into little Aldi or one of? The, yeah. the so the, the, so the point of the podcast is can we not make this inevitable can we at least think about it so when you're walking down the high street instead of being, making the subconscious decision of just popping into the big branded kind of coffee shop can you make can you just I just want to jolt people and say hey I remember that guy having all of those conversations but are we all innately lazy yes I mean I work really hard in order to be lazy and so if, if I just had my time would I just sit on a beach and just stare out to sea, probably, but I can't do that. So I work incredibly hard, so for a couple of years I can go and do something like that. But because we're lazy, we like convenience. And the fact is, the high street is an inconvenient place to shop. It doesn't matter how much we love it, you've got to park, you've got to find somewhere to park, you've got to pay to park, you've got to haul your goods half a mile from the car park and actually go into one shop and pick up a little bit of this and a little bit of that and it's getting heavier and heavier. Or you can go to one big place with all those big shelves and you can pile it all into a trolley and you can wheel it along flat, nice tarmac um, services directly to your car and put it in and come home. Yeah, maybe and delivery will be out. So how much of your stuff now, you mentioned on online and I know you wholesale, is, is most of your food, trade? Food is a really difficult thing. When you've got artisan food, let's not call it artisan food because it's a bad thing you could even calling it speciality food is a bad thing I think but but when you have got food that is not necessarily readily available in a multiple or in a supermarket 
it's a really difficult thing to plan ahead. Now, when you want food, you kind of want it instantaneously. So you, you stop the car and you go into a garage, you buy a Mars bar or you buy something else and you eat it because it's instant gratification. Likewise, when I want a jar of olives, I want a jar of olives. I don't want to wait 24 hours for it and actually have to be in when it's actually going to be delivered. And that's where the supermarket deliveries are really work incredibly well because more and more people are using those. And mm. um, yeah, more and more of it is actually going online. But do you really want to delay that gratification? And I know there are companies out there that are successfully doing it. So your your tough. products, where's your primary? Are you predominantly wholesale? Are you going straight to restaurants and bars? Or are you B to C? Well, are you all we, of the above? All of the above, if, if we're perfectly honest. I mean, 90% of our business is business to business. And of that 90%, I suppose if you split that, about 50% goes through distributors and about 50% of it is direct. And we, well, it's, it, we've got too many SKUs. We've got 400 odd SKUs, uh, sorry, we've got 400 odd products. No wholesaler, no distributor can ever possibly stock all of those, but customers want to buy them. And so the difficulty is that what we're now trying to do is we're, we're actually trying to share with our distributors what the direct customers are, are buying from us so that you, you can stop more of the right lines and not be flogging a dead horse, if you like. And sort of, but I love, I, I love this one skew, but it only sells sort of one unit a year. So, yeah, we're, tr we're trying to do all sorts of different things in order to actually reach the right market. Does that how you can, you know, I mean, that is a lot, a lot of products, as you say. Is that because you, you know, you're still involved in the design of the product? You get mm, super passionate absolutely. and excited. Because you, yeah, yeah, you've yeah. been doing this, I mean, you know, a quarter of a century of doing it, and I can tell oh, still, I can't help it. Because what, what, what <laughs> is inspiring? Well. <laughs> no, because, because I, I, although we've not met before today, <laughs> yeah. your name regularly comes up. And I think oh, you really? were talking at an event once, and my marketing manager was there as well. And he said, your, your kind of infectious enthusiasm and love for what you do and your charisma comes across. And I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm 14 years in, I'm pretty knackered, you know, and I still love it, I still love it, but, uh, but you're 10 years ahead of me. How do you 12. maintain that? 12, yeah, so, so how do you, you know, where does the pleasure come from? Is the pleasure in that, in that product development? How have you managed to stay so still, excited, enthusiastic, and when you talk about the olives and the olive trees and you see you kind of light up, how are you doing that? What, what's the bit that, that, that really gets you buzzing? I think it's a combination of the fear of failure and the absolute desire for success. And what, and, and I really do want the people actually within this business to, to grow and develop and to have the same love and enthusiasm for what we do that I do. And to actually share in that and to see them. Do you know, it's, sometimes it's interesting because when, um, when people walk across the car park, I, I, I sometimes just observe them from, from the top window. And sometimes people get out of the car and they're really sort of buoyant. You can see them in the morning, they're really buoyant. They walk across the car park and they kind of slump and they're just, oh, I'm gonna work. Other people, I watch them get out of the car and they sort of climb out of the car and they go, oh, yeah, we're going into it. We're going into it. We really like doing what we're doing. Now, I know that I've got a successful team when I see people doing that, when people aren't just clock watching, when they're really engaged, when they do get feisty, when they do challenge, say, just why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? Then I know that there's that degree. You use the word passion, and it's one that I really try and avoid, but I call it real enthusiasm and devotion and dedication. And I want people who want to grow, and I want people who really want to develop and see this business develop, whether that be in olives or in dressings or nuts or snacks or sauces or pet food or dog food or oil or whatever it may be, whatever we do to bring that same degree of enthusiasm. 
And, and I guess that's what I try and bring every day. Don't always succeed, good Lord, no. But maybe nine days out of 10, maybe nine days out of 10, I, I actually manage it. Yeah. I bring that in. But uh, yeah, times are challenging. It's, you know, it's a tough time to be in business. There's all the uncertainty that there is out there. And, and I don't want to get, uh, this podcast hopefully will stand the test of time. Um, but the political situation that we're actually working our way right through, what I think, what I don't think that our politicians and our, and our masters realise is just what that is doing to the zeitgeist of how people consider their daily lives, the impact that is having on business, irrespective of this, uh, it's all absolutely fine, business is, is, is fine. It has an impact. People are spending less. They are nervous about it. Casual dining is suffering. Uh, all sorts of industries are suffering. The discretionary end of the market is really, really, really suffering. And you know we're gonna become a self-fulfilling prophecy if we're not careful. So to maintain that enthusiasm is ever more important. And if I actually sort of sit and think about the business and sort of say, how am I actually going to make this grow by being even more enthusiastic today than I was yesterday? Which is, which is, yeah, how soft are you for doing it? I'm slightly concerned that your team are going to listen to this now and they're going to go, man, I've got to get out of the car park with more enthusiasm. <laughs> they're going to be putting up in the morning. Looking up, oh, the, looking up the You didn't specify yeah, yeah. which window it is, so you might get away with it for a while. But what's right, I sit, you, I sit at the big bank of uh, CCTV cameras. Yeah. <laughs> it's just yeah. stroking yeah. a big white cat. Yeah. At the appraisal, it's like, well, yeah. I did notice that on three days this week, you didn't get out of your car. No, but it concerns me. It does concern me. It really does concern me if people actually looking glum when they actually come in and sit down the desk. I'm the same. No, it can't. Be Super and, excited. And, 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 I mean, modern employment law is just so inhumane. You're just not allowed to have the sorts of conversations that you yearn to have, which is you look really unhappy. I am really unhappy. Well, you don't have to come and work, you know. Really? <laughs> no. Oh, okay. What, you mean I can leave? Yes, the door's not locked. It's so true, isn't it? You only live yeah. once. Please do something uh, yeah, you enjoy. Yeah, the number yeah, of conversations, yeah, I mean, again, off record you, just you have where you go, please, like, you, as far as I'm aware, you only live once and you don't look like you're enjoying it. Have you thought about doing something else? And uh, how dare you? You're, what are you accusing? me off but I agree for me HR law should be really simple in the fact that no you know and it, and I think it's really interesting to hear <laughs> that what you I'm going to get myself in trouble territory. yeah yeah <laughs> I'm going to get myself in trouble it's fine I'm used to it um, but when you know when I talk about one of the things that, that motivates you and that makes you buzz and all that kind of stuff actually for you to talk about it's your team and it's their development and it's kind of creating a, yeah, a job that they love I and a business they love want to develop that's brilliant and I think not everybody but a lot of business people are the same one of the proudest things I see over, over the years is you know the number of, of people within the business who've got married and then they've had kids and customers mm. as well and you see them on this life journey I always say we're humans first and we're business people second and, and I love to go I was sat with my bakers this week and say look yes you know business is fundamentally simple more money's got to come in than goes out because we've got to have some left but basically you know make <laughs> enough that you're all employed I'm not I'm not I'm not I don't need you to chuck in so much money I'm not off you know like yeah. some super luxury yacht and a millionaire I was like but could you at least try and pay your wages and, and be proactive with that so look at other ways that we can sell our products and other things we do but employment law should be simple because no uh, you know right-minded employer is ever going to want to lose somebody who's really really good at their job you're always no. going to work your butt off to look after them and to keep them so I was like it's really simple it's like you know you'd be good at your job and I guarantee 
guarantee pretty much your employer will look after you and therefore it's a two-way thing. I get at big corporate level that's not the case, so don't go and work in the big corporate. There should be two rules for employment law. Yes, some people are assholes and they're big corporate companies, but in all the little companies, work for a good guy and then the law is simple. You do a good job, he'll do a good job. And I pretty much think it would be self-fulfilling and the rest of it is just a pain in the ass. But I could spend a, an hour, probably no, I could spend a week talking about yeah, the challenges of employing. Do you know what, since we've people. met, since, since we've actually met about um, whatever it is, an hour and a half yeah. ago, that's the longest speech that you've given so far. <laughs> yeah. So quite clearly, I think we found, we've it, we found the mark tough, crib I've had, I've had a tough week on, well, human beings overcome, I'm not going to ask. Uh, human, okay. we, we overcomplicate relationships. We do, we but, but there's nothing more simple. I mean, that, that AA Gill article that I told yes. you about, about the concept of the restaurant is, is really simple. I walk in, I hang up my coat, I sit down, you feed me, you give me back my coat, I pay and I go. There's nothing more complicated. Yeah. And human relationships in, in a workplace are nothing more complicated. There's a job description. That's what I actually expect. It's a fair expectation that you're going to fulfill the obligations on there and you're going to do them to your best effect. And if you don't, we're going to be having a conversation. It's, it's that it's simple. And we'll really look after you and bend over backwards yeah, if you're doing a good yeah. thing. And we want you to have a great job and I want you to have a great holiday and I want you to enjoy your life and I want yeah. you to, to you know get a work-life balance. I want all of that. But, you know, yeah, especially yeah. a senior manager. Are you, are you described as a demanding employer, a demanding um, boss? I think I've got. I, I, I would actually say that I demand very little, but I expect a lot. If that if that's not too weird a thing to say. So. No, no, no. I mean, the demand. I, I, I would probably agree, although there's probably plenty of <laughs> people, be people out there that would that would disagree. And I I do have high expectations. I do expect a lot. I don't I don't make demands. So I think in in the in the true to be literal about the, the the phrase you've just said, I demand very little, but I expect a great deal. I would say exactly the same. I demand very little, but I, I have huge expectations and high expectations. And we, 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 we pay reasonable salaries and we expect people, therefore, to perform. Yeah. And it's... It's not an easy thing. No. Oh, they, they always say managing managing people is, is dead easy, apart from the people part. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, and the reason that I don't demand very much is actually, fundamentally, I'm a bit of a hippie. I think you should go and do whatever you want to do in the world. I, I love the fact that you went and drove so, your motorbike and rode around the med. And I kind of think, like, if you're loving your job, great. And if you're not, I'm not going to demand you do your job. Fundamentally, I actually, I would rather that you didn't do your job if it's making yeah, you rather, unhappy. I'd rather so, you go and actually enjoy yourself. Exactly. So, so, so we, we, nearly, we nearly employ, or somebody actually applied to us for a job and I was sort of chatting to them um, it wasn't actually a formal interview at this particular time. I was just chatting to them and reading their CV and it said all of their interests and it said I absolutely love horses I love working in the outside or oh, I also love food and I'm, what are you really good at oh I'm really good at working with horses oh I'm bad with food I said you, you don't really want to work with food do you no you, you want to go and work with horses yes then why are we talking? Yeah. Why are we t- I haven't got a horse. There are any horses here. <laughs> There's the outside. Yeah. Go to the, oh really, can I, do you think I should? Absolutely. Yeah. Like yeah. you said, I mean, go and, go and do what you enjoy doing. Humans first, that's why I said yes. business second. Well, that's we what we're may talking. have gone yeah. off on a tangent, so to bring it back in. But that's part of the fun, because yeah. I mean, we, we, this is kind of what fuels the business and the industry that we're in, surely. And because that's one of the whole reasons it's called, uh, 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 why it's called humans for, in hospitality. or Humans uh, of hospitality, well remember. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That, <laughs> sorry, I, uh, I get kind I'm of carried away now. Good. I think stumble, yeah, it's, well, <laughs> my, my words stumble sometimes in my enthusiasm. Uh, you can think eight times faster than I think you can speak. So yeah, very often, words are tumbling yes. out. Uh, yeah, I'm very guilty of that too. I actually know sometimes I think I speak before I think but that's a whole other story uh, well yeah we're all guilty of that i'm sure 
But the human element of everything that we do is the fundamental backbone of every single thing that we do. And who are we actually doing it for? Well, we're doing it for other humans out there. That, that's who we're really doing. And everything in life, I, I, I realised, it wasn't until I'd probably left the army and been out of the army for about 10, 15 years, I suddenly realised that the armed forces are all about communication as well. They're all about people. It's not about wars or guns or fighting. Every single interaction that you have when you're in the forces is all about communication. Whether you're trying to communicate with a white flag or whether you're trying to communicate at the end of a gun, you're still trying to send some form of a message and have some form of dialogue. And it's exactly the same in business now. It's exactly the same in every single thing that we do. It relies on really good communication. Hmm. And the number of times I've fallen foul of the words that were heard were not necessarily the words that were spoken. And what you understood me to say is completely different. And the interpretation that you put on it. And I remember years ago, somebody said, how do you know if your communication has been effective? And the only way in which you know your communication has been effective is if you achieve the desired result. In other words, if the person that you've communicated with does the thing that you'd actually either like them to do, if it's an instruction, or you get the end result that you, you expect. If not, you're com well, you haven't communicated well enough. It's very true, yeah. Um, so one of the other things I just wanted to touch on briefly, and we're, we're, we're coming to a close for those people who have, you know, kind of arrived at their destination, if they were in their car or walking their dog, we've run out of time and gone, man, I wish these guys would finish it off. You know, fascinating that they are. Yeah, they, they, they really should finish. Turn me off long ago, yeah. probably. Um, you talk about some of the, um, I want to touch on the sustainability and environmental stuff because that's become, I would say, more and more important. Yeah. And you talk about it with regards to um, some of the preservatives and the way that olives are treated and packaging and stuff. So how is that relevant in, in olives at all? And uh, yeah, where does the environmental and sustainability and packaging and, and how do you interpret environmental impact? We have, um, the, the traditional way of sending olives out is in a white plastic tub printed, um, lots of ink and everything else. We just recently got rid of all of that and we've switched to a recycled cardboard box, which is far better. And we are struggling at the moment because we still have to use a plastic bag to actually put the olives in because there is no, there is nothing that we can do other than do that. We've, we've tried a biodegradable bag, which is great because it biodegraded and just made the olives go off. It's, that wasn't any good. Uh, we've tried another bag that is sort of a, a nice recycle, but it's not strong enough. So we've tried all sorts of things. That's just one element, but we look all the time at reducing our water usage, so we have done a whole load of things. The, the olive industry is quite a thirsty, thirsty industry. It uses a lot of water, and we use a lot of water in our, in our process. Um, but by doing a number of things, we've actually managed to reduce our water usage by around about 60%. And that original trip, that whole original trip that I told you about when we went around the Mediterranean, was actually all supposed to be about raising the issue of water rights in the Mediterranean. So we've always had a real environmental and ecological streak that runs right the way through this business. So we work with farmers on developing reed beds and doing all sorts of other things actually on the farms. And we... We ensure that we work with farmers, although most of our olives are not necessarily organic, they're simply not certified to be organic because most of them come from cooperatives. And in a cooperative, unless every single member of that cooperative, and there can be 50 to 60 farmers, every, unless every single one of those pays the license fee to the organic certified fine body, can't be organic. But they don't use pesticides as a general rule. A little bit of copper sulfate to actually sort of keep the, keep, uh, the flies off. Other than that, there isn't anything that's used and there aren't any mass fertilizers being used. It's just 
and it's a natural pre, product. Pre-organic accreditation, I think it was just called food, wasn't it? I think we just grew our food that we way. We did just day, grow and, our and, food. And that's but, become a, a Nesso thing yeah, in our no, culture. I don't, I don't know whether people actually... I, and people sort of say, oh, well, aren't organic olives better? Well, 90% of our olives are the product of organic farming. They just haven't paid the certification body. So they're there. Mm. This comes up a lot. I was actually with um, Helen Browning, uh, which podcast has already gone out, which was about the um, Chief Executive of the Soil Association and around organic and how are we going to sustain... Yeah, life on planet Earth and feed 20, uh, 50, uh, no, was it 10 billion people by 2050? And can we actually do that? And actually, she was very optimistic about the fact that it's possible and you can still maintain that yield and farm in an organic yeah, yeah. way. But yeah, she's very aware of the fact the most important thing is actually to do it and not to get the accreditation to do it. One of the, the other things that we do is we are very considered about the ingredients that we use. And we. We sometimes people raise the issue that well you use palm oil in some of your products yeah we do use palm oil so but it kills orangutans when you actually look at the whole palm oil industry and you look at the olive oil industry or the rapeseed oil industry or the sunflower oil industry and you look at how sustainable palm oil production is in certain areas of the world Malaysia is a, is a really good example and they actually are able to produce far more oil that is necessary to actually sort of feed the world in the first place from one hectare, but with no intervention and no water or far less use of water. When you actually have, uh, I think it's a hectare of something like rapeseed oil or sunflower oil, you have to put fossil fuels over that five or six times. First of all, to actually plough the ground, then to sow, then to sow. Then you've actually got to go and maybe cultivate it or fertilise it. Then you've got to go and harvest it, and then you've got to plough again. So you're putting fossil fuels five times over that, whereas palm oil production uses none of that. And it's a really interesting thing that you need to be considered and you need to understand the full picture. Because on the face of it, you know, brilliant advert that came out at Christmas and everybody hates palm oil. Research it, find out, be considered, be, be knowledgeable about your subject as opposed to leaping to conclusions. We try and research as far as possible. We know why we use a particular peanut or a particular olive. We know where they come from. We've done our research. We make sure that there is a real sustainable ethic underneath what we do. We want to be considered and eco ecological. That's, it's, it's fundamental to our business, always has been. Mm. So palm oil's come up a couple of times and I haven't actually looked into it yet, so I, I feel slightly ignorant of it. Claire actually mentioned it earlier in the fact she's doing some money raising, I think, with Lush and the, uh, the Sumatran kind of jungle and the orangutans and stuff. So I'm presuming that there are sources of palm oil which yeah, are completely sustainable, sustainable palm and palm there are sources that really aren't. Yeah. So, so it's not there is, that there, there isn't are, an issue, yeah, presumably, yeah. but it's... The, oh, it's not that there isn't an issue, but it's actually to understand the full issue not just the fact that yes there have been sort of large areas of rainforest that have actually been deforested and palm, palm oil plantations have been bought in that that's undeniable however there are also sustainable palm oil production facilities where the palm tree is actually pushed over and actually used for fertilizer where they actually take the bark from the palm oil and that's actually used to power the mills so it's not fossil fuels it's actually come direct from the from the husk of the palm itself that's actually used to power the mill the amount of people that are actually being employed in the industry reduces the level of poverty which reduces the need for state aid and state and state funding so it is actually in some areas a very very highly sustainable industry and who are we to sit who are we to sit in 
in our very nice, comfortable homes over here without any understanding of the industry and the, and the issues that those people face in those countries and just damn it out of hand. Yeah. You've got to do your research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think from a consumer perspective, it's where it makes it complicated because can, the consumer hasn't always got the time to go and research every single nuance no, of what's but, going on on planet Earth. But, but, they, but if you work with brands or, or companies or people that you trust yeah. who have gone and done that... But then there then is then a danger really of brands leaping onto a bandwagon in order to make themselves look better than they possibly are. Yeah, you know, I'm I leaping think, onto this bandwagon because all of a sudden I'm going to shout about my that, ecological. Yeah, that's the big I think work yeah. with a little guy. When, yeah. when people come but and eat we, in my restaurant, you know, we've I, been doing this for 26 years. Yeah, and we have always taken an environmental and ecological stance. We've always researched into the products that we take and where they come from and the best transport methods and all of those things to try and actually minimize the impact that we have on the planet. Nowadays, that's, that's become a byword for everybody, and everybody's doing it. Yeah. Of course, because it's becoming ever more present. It was present 26 or 27 years ago when we left to go and ride around the Mediterranean to raise the issue of water rights and because of the issue of water and, and the quality of water in the Mediterranean. That's what we went to go and do that trip on. What we discovered was olives. So, yeah, uh, lucky you did for the, for the rest <laughs> of us because they're lovely. Um, but it's but yeah. always been a really strong strand in the business. Yeah, yeah, good. And, I, and, I, and I I mean, the table that we're sitting at is, is made out of reclaimed Edwardian roof rafters. Excellent. It's a beautiful table. So the, the wood in this tree was a sapling at about 1700. Incredible, isn't it? Yeah. That's proper recycling, isn't it? That's, uh, let's use it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I say we're, 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 we are coming to the end. Uh, you've created this, uh, this amazing brand. You've got 400 products. You're, you know, you're well known, you're well respected. Um, but it's, it's relentless and, and we, know we were chatting earlier, you're 25 years in and it's still you know, really hard graft, although you still love it. Um, do you ever feel you know, kind of overwhelmed by what you've created and how do you manage that? How do you not just end up kind of you know, following the motions and just doing it because of what you've always done? But how do you, how do, you know, do you think, God, how do I get out of this? And I drink incredibly heavily. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, well, it was organic wine. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, all the wine in our shop's organic. Is it? Funny enough, ironically, the only, the only wine that we've got in our shop that isn't organic is the English wine. It's the only one. Yeah, uh, the only one. But it's yeah. beautiful. It's from, from Langham's. Um, how, how do I... Yeah, do I ever go overwhelmed? Of course you do. Uh, and, and I think anybody would, would be an absolute liar if they said that they didn't. And then you've just got to take a little bit of distance and a bit of perspective and look at yourself in the mirror and give yourself a, a slap and sort of say, why are you being so overwhelmed? Everybody's being overwhelmed. Just get, get on with it. Go, just get back to it and... Look after the, the little things and go and have some good conversations and go and talk to people and have some more communications and actually go and talk to your customers and sort of say, what are we doing wrong? What are we doing wrong? Why have you bought from us? Did, did we piss you off? And how did we piss you off? And how can we actually re repair that? And, you know, we've done a massive amount of that in the last few years. And I'm quite enjoying the fact that I'm rebuilding relationships and rekindling relationships with people who quite clearly through frankly, poor communications and miscommunication, we, we've upset and annoyed. And I, I take great satisfaction over rebuilding some of those relationships. It takes a lot of time, mm -hmm. but... Yeah, I think that, that humility and humbleness to recognise that, you know, you don't, you don't become awesome. arrogant, you don't, yeah. Yeah, you don't, you don't, um, you don't take it for granted. I, I, I saw this, the, yeah, the, this lovely portmanteau word, be flawsome. Uh, you know, admit your flaws, awesome. but be awesome about the way in which you do it. Be an awesome company, but do accept the fact you've got flaws. And I fully accept, and I'm the first person to stick my hand up and sort of say, do you know what, we got that yeah. absolutely hopelessly wrong, yeah. and I'm really, yeah. really sorry. Yeah. What can we do to make amends, and how can we bend over backwards 
in order to actually ensure that we give you the service that you need. And, and I guess in the end, I want to continue to work with the people that we like and like us. I don't want to work with people that don't like us. I don't want the people that don't, that don't value what we do and don't attribute any value to it and just assume it's just a commodity. It isn't. And anybody I think who treats their suppliers as just a commodity supplier, it's, it, it's not the right way to do business. Yeah. That's true. So it is about relationship. Some of my best customers are the people that we've let down, and uh, and I'm, again, I'm always really open. I'm like, look, we're, we're, we make mistakes, you know. It's like you've got yeah, we're human. Yeah, we're human. We're not. We're, we're particularly because we're not one of these, you know, formulaic machines. So I was like, but if we've made a mistake, we'll hold our hands up and I'll be apologetic. I can probably explain to you why it wasn't arrogance. It wasn't nonchalance. I hate those feedback emails that go, oh, license to print money, restaurant on the beach, all that kind of stuff. And you think, my God, you've got no idea. You know, I'm fairly thick-skinned. I've been doing this long enough. But my team who are in there, who have you know, have done 15 days straight because the sun came out, and none of them can take a day off because it, you know, like what happened last summer with the with the relentless sunshine. And you think, you know, I, I know that they've they've not had a day off, they've not seen their partners or their kids, they've not gone off and you know, kind of gone out for a walk or gone for a swim. They've seen what everybody else enjoying themselves. And you think it's bad enough that you're saying this to me, but to them, like you know, have some respect. Actually, look into it. it's knowledge again. Well, please just ask first. But then I will yeah. go and make it up to them, and I'll say, look. This is why, let me just explain it, but you're absolutely right, we shouldn't have let you down. There are some reasons, but what can we do to make it up to you? And, and they become your best customer. If you're just honest, they become your best customers. Yeah. I hate like TripAdvisor and all this kind of uh, anonymous review thing where no longer is there a name behind it. And I wanna, you know, literally sometimes I, I used to have notifications switched on on my phone and a review would come through and I might have been out with my family. Yeah, you know, but that just talk. really upsets you when you ah, see it. And I literally wanted to, to, to go like, where do you live? Not because I wanna come and shout at you, but I just wanted to pull in and go, look, do you have any idea about the number of people and the, the hundreds effect, of hours that go on and the impact that, that, that yeah, has? Yeah, you just ping that out with no consideration mm. and here I am and now <laughs> yeah, yes I may have taken it personally but part of the thing you said is that I wouldn't and I don't care and I was like you know, I dedicated my life to this my kids have, have you ever seen the film Chef? Uh, yeah uh, did I? I yeah I did yeah, I should go, you should go yeah. back and watch that again actually because yeah. that captures up captures yeah, so many of the things that you've just mentioned yeah. good yeah. right um, last thing and I have to ask because you are a, uh, a wise man and you've been doing this a while so you must get asked a lot for some advice and you must hear recommendations either in in, in, in this industry or just in, in business in general so really, is, is there any kind of business advice that or, or kind of misinformation that you regularly hear and you think ignore that that's nonsense that's kind of being pumped at you by people who don't know what they're doing or the flip side is there any really good advice either from you or that you hear where you went yes absolutely that's what you need to know to make your life or your business successful learn how to recruit learn how to recruit as well as you possibly can because you cannot run your business without really good people and if you choose the wrong ones and bring them in they are toxic and over the years I have made recruiting errors and I've seen other people make recruiting errors and to unwind those is really difficult sometimes so you've got to be really careful about the people you bring in it's not the what we do it's actually who is doing it who's answering your phone who is actually doing your sales who is cooking your breakfast who is actually chefing for you it's the who and if you actually understand that and really get underneath the who and learn how to recruit well and really well that that's a, a skill I wish I'd had. Do you have it one. now? Yes. 
Any nuggets of how? What, what do you do differently now that you didn't do? Too long to explain that. <laughs> Too long to explain that. I, I, I'll explain off, offline and okay. we, we, maybe we'll do another podcast Perfect. all about yeah, it. Well, maybe we'll, we'll do one specifically, a little, a little yeah, bonus yeah, yeah. cast because yeah. you're right and, and I've experienced that as well and, and I'm we all still have. learning. And, uh, yeah, to get I mean, my, hit, would be great. My, my, my hit rate is probably about 30%. Right. So I'll probably get 60% still wrong. Yeah, yeah, but, but way better than before. Okay, well, um, thank you for sparing the time. I could Pleasure. talk to you for the rest of the week, but um, we can't. We'll, we'll, no. we'll do it again. But, you know, congratulations on what you've done. Well Bless done you. for maintaining that much enthusiasm. Indeed. I love what you do. I love your brand. It's so good to finally meet you. I definitely will come back and speak to you again. But for now, Giles, where can people find out more about you? Where do they go to buy your product? Oh, you can go all over the place. I walk into a good deli. Ask for us by name. Please do ask for us by name. Um, you can buy us online. You can come to us directly. You can uh, work with any manner. Good delis, farm shops. What's, what's your website address? Oh, www.olivesetal.co.uk. We should have chosen an easier name for the business. We really should. Don't worry, I will put the, uh, the website on Bless the show you. notes as well. Humanshospitality.co.uk. Yeah. Uh, the links will all be on there. But uh, yeah, thank you for your time and I'll love to speak to you again soon. Pleasure. Thank you. So there you have it. You have reached the end of another episode of the Humans of Hospitality podcast. I thank you so much for listening. Please go and visit our website, humansofhospitality.co.uk for the show notes and extra episodes and information. And whilst you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter and to receive free materials all about the humans behind our incredible industry. Lastly, if you could subscribe,